All right, shall we? Let's go. Here we go. Yeah. Welcome to Why Not Change the World, the RPI podcast. I'm Reeve Hamilton. Today, we're talking about engineering, how it can change the world, and why it's worth studying. I'm joined by two exceptional guests, Shaker Garde, the Dean of the School of Engineering at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Hi. And John Wen, the head of the Department of Electrical, Computer, and Systems Engineering and Russell Sage Professor at Rensselaer. Hello. Now, Shaker, maybe I'll start with you. Uh, Why engineering? What drew you to engineering as a field of study? So first of all, thank you for having me for here for this uh, really interesting conversation. You know, when I was in middle school and high school, um, I loved science. I loved physics, chemistry. I didn't take biology, uh, uh, and I, I regret that now. And I loved math. <clears throat> and at the time, uh, digital watches had just come out, um, and I loved taking them apart, especially if my friend had, uh, you know, walked into water with it, and it was, it was uh, ruined, and I'd, I'd be the person to fix it. I also loved playing with light, and so we had prisms and mirrors and so on. Um, so I, I, liked, I liked science, I liked math, and I liked solving problems. I liked taking things apart. And so engineering was sort of like natural choice for me. Yeah. And John, how about you? Yeah. Well, uh, my dad uh, was an engineer. Uh, uh, he, he was a, a consulting engineer, which means he's a problem solver. Uh, I don't think he has ever met a problem that uh, he couldn't tackle. And uh, so I grew up in Taiwan. Uh, so at that time, when I was growing up, uh, Taiwan was behind technologically. Uh, but uh, my dad had this can-do spirit that I, I don't, uh, you know, there were uh, 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 just things varying from refrigeration, air conditioning, uh, to how to design a suspension bridge, uh, how to uh, design a weaving machine for wires for highway, uh, just really diverse things. And he always felt he could learn and then come up with solutions. So to me, engineering is problem solving. It's come up with a creative solution. And, and he also was uh, uh, very entrepreneurial. So he started his own company. So to me, engineering is, uh, I kind of grew up with that culture and just seems like a natural thing. It's exciting. Uh, solving problem, making impact, and having fun at the same time. Yeah, and that gets into a question I had where, I mean, if you look at the kinds of engineering that are just taught here on the Rensselaer campus, I mean, you have biomedical engineering, civil engineering, electrical engineering. What is the common thread through all these things? What, what is the engineering and engineering? Um, I could go first. So we are on the campus of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. As you know, we're going to celebrate... Uh, our 200th anniversary in 2024. And so let's go back a little bit, maybe 200 years ago. Right? Rensselaer was founded by Stephen Van Rensselaer with the, with the goal to apply science to the common purposes of life. <clears throat> and I think I cannot come up with a better definition of engineering Absolutely. to apply science to common purposes of life. You know, so we engineers, all of these disciplines, biomedical, nuclear, mechanical, we understand science, we do math, and then we harness the power of science to solve real-life problems. Um, that is engineering to me. Absolutely. I love that model, you know, the, uh, applying the uh, science for the common purpose alive. I think that just really wonderful captures the Rensselaer spirit. And to me, engineering is uh, problem solving and, uh, uh, and improve things. Uh, and, and I think that's uh, uh, really the, so, so I always think about, uh, you know, a steam engine, that's sort of the, the early engineering example, uh, how that sort of builds on each iteration and keep on refining and drawing on each other 
there's insight and finally come up with something tremendously impactful. And there are lots of examples today uh, from semiconductor uh, to cell phone. Uh, it's uh, uh, engineering is just having a, a huge impact uh, and it's problem solving and uh, improving life. Now, John, you were... Uh your department focuses on electrical uh, computer and systems engineering. What drew you to that specifically? Electrical engineering is very broad, uh, and uh, the the fundamental uh, 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 there are some fundamental principles. Uh, so our department is uh, uh, broader than uh, uh, than electrical engineering. We have electrical, computer, and systems. <laughs> so pretty it's much a every, large department. It's a large department, and it's intellectually very broad. Uh, so the, the you have the the foundational the electrical engineering from the uh, uh, semiconductors, uh, uh, solid state physics uh, to power systems, uh, how the electricity gets generated. And transmitted, uh, and uh, and and how it gets harnessed and to be used. Uh, one exercise I like to do with freshmen or uh, high school students uh, visiting us is that I try to uh, ask them uh, to imagine. Suppose you have a total blackout, you don't have electricity. Uh, what will happen? Uh, how your life will be changed? And if some people say, "Oh, then I can't wash my dishes. I can't watch TV. Uh, then there's no light. So I'll be in the dark, etc." And then one kid finally uh, raises his hand and say, "Oh." Uh, no electricity, no happiness. So electricity really is so fundamental. That means our way of life, our happiness, uh, is really predicated on the availability and the harnessing of electricity. Well, I think in case of electricity, it might be even more fundamental than that. I mean, Mm -hmm. happiness, obviously, Mm -hmm. but uh, maybe no electricity, no modern life. No modern life, for for sure. Some people argue that electricity is a fundamental human right. Yes. <laughs> that, yes. That you know the governments have responsibility not only to provide water and you know but but, but electricity as well. Yeah, you know? well yeah. what some of my students yeah. would say uh, <coughs> you know internet is fundamental human right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> of course without electricity you also don't have internet as well, you know. That's true. Yeah. Well I mean you have both referenced solving real world problems. I mean dealing with a blackout is one of those. Uh, what are what are some of the problems out there in the world that you can use engineering to tackle or that maybe we are using engineering to tackle here on campus? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I like to do this exercise. You know, you sort of think about the future and make a list of top three or four big problems that the world is facing. You know, everybody will have their list and some energy would be an important part of it. Uh, you know, water may be an important part of it. Um, human health and mitigation of diseases, climate change, um, you know, cybersecurity or security of infrastructure. These will be the problems that would land upon everybody's list. And when you think about, you know, how are we going to solve these problems? How are we going to make energy cheaply available? How are we going to mitigate diseases and, and improve human health? Engineers, I would argue, are smack in the middle of it. Uh, you mentioned a whole number of disciplines, uh, you know, biomedical and nuclear and mechanical, aerospace and so on. Every one of the engineering discipline is, is uh rooted in a fundamental scientific discipline. But we, so we know that science, chemical engineers know chemistry really well, they know math really well, but they're applying that knowledge to solve important problems. They're, they're engineering antibodies, for example, to, to, uh, against uh, diseases. Or, you know, uh, people in John Wentz department in ECSC are uh, designing communications devices. They're using artificial intelligence and so on to apply to, to many exciting pr- problems. 
Yeah, and uh, we're uh, certainly looking beyond the, what's currently available. For example, the uh, Shaker mentioned uh, uh, communication uh, system networking. So we're looking beyond 5G. So right now, 5G is all the rage. Uh, and uh, so people in my department are looking uh, at the, the millimeter wave, terahertz kind of sensing and transmission, which can go beyond, go even faster than, uh, than 5G. What does it take to look beyond something that doesn't even exist yet? I mean, how do you look into the future and think, here's the... Here are the engineering problems we're going to be dealing with. I think that's a that's a great question. And so let's look back for a moment, and then we look to the future, right? So um, if you look back two thousand years, you know, life was stasis for a long time, and then some magic happened. Maybe two hundred fifty to twenty five years ago, uh, the first industrial revolution started, right? And so over the last two hundred years or so. Um, as a result of, uh, you know, we're in the in the middle of fourth industrial revolution. John, would you argue? Mm, that's right? right. As a result of these uh, technological revolutions or industrial revolutions, life has gotten better for humanity, right? And and so let's just look at the last uh, revolution, which is the digital or cyber revolution, digital revolution, right? Um, I would argue that three people who were critical for for that are all Rensselaer alums. In fact, they are alums of your department, mm -hmm. John, right? That's right. Uh, yep. So person who invented a microprocessor, um, Ted Hoff, mm -hmm. uh, digital camera, Steve Sasson, and um, um, Curtis Priam, uh, inventor of a graphics processor, mm -hmm. right? And so what led to that revolution? I would say engineering um, and physics got together. So it's the overlap of engineering and physics that launched the digital revolution. Right? And so you look to the future and you say, what would the next revolution look like? Right? What are the big pillars of the next revolution? And I would argue that it's going to be um, something in the area of biology, uh, biological systems, then computing, AI, algorithms, smart algorithms, broadly writ, and then engineering. I, I think the overlap of these things or, or convergence of these three disciplines, engineering, you know, biology, and, and computing, AI, uh, algorithms is going to be the you know kind of the kernel of the next uh, uh, fifth revolution, if you will, technological mm -hmm. revolution. Yeah, I yeah. totally agree. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely, and there are people yeah. uh, you know in Rensselaer, my department, and others are working on that intersection. Uh, so part of my own research with my co colleague uh, looks at the circadian rhythm. How does light uh, and uh, a scheduling of sleep uh, affect the human alertness? Uh, so suppose you have an exam coming up, so instead of drinking a lot of coffee, uh, so maybe you know, and or, and you stay up whole night studying. Uh, Maybe the better thing to do is to uh, schedule your lighting and schedule your environment, schedule your sleep in such a way that your alertness is maximum uh, at the time of the exam. You know, so so that's also the type of problem we're looking at. Of course, uh, um, in, you know, military is very interesting. In this, so we're supported by army to look at this. Yeah. Well, and that makes me think of uh, this idea we have at Rensselaer about the new polytechnic, which is mm -hmm. all about breaking down barriers between disciplines and sort of all coming together to solve these global challenges. I mean, how do you encourage, especially maybe in the position of the dean, encourage that sort of overlapping of disciplines and get people, getting people to work together? How do engineers collaborate with non-engineers? Mm -hmm. So I, I would say that interdisciplinarity or multidisciplinarity is um, you know part of the DNA here at Rensselaer. We like to say that the walls are very low, 
Um, and, and but, but I think fundamentally what drives uh, multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary collaboration is that if you look at any modern problems, I described the energy or human health or you know mm. cyber, cyber or infrastructure security. These are not the kinds of problems where one single professor sitting in their lab or in their room can solve them. Mm-hmm. It requires people from many different disciplines to come together. And so it's uh, as, as leaders, obviously, just articulating uh, that this problem requires not only, you know, I'm not sure, John, if you imagine 10 years ago that you'll have in your department a person working on circadian rhythm, for example, in electrical engineering, right? But articulating that this solving a, pro- a large, he- big, hairy, kind of complex problem requires um, people from different disciplines. And there's many, many, many examples um, you know, in engineering, um, big research is done through um, large multidisciplinary centers. And so you look at any one of those centers, uh, engineering research centers, and that, that these cent- for example, uh, lighting-enabled systems and applications, LISA. It will have people from electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, physics, and, you know, people studying human factors, so cognitive scientists and so on. It's, it's, a, uh, it's natural for people to get together to solve these big problems. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I love the culture uh, of RPI. The, uh, we have a highly collaborative, uh, interactive culture. Uh, and uh, uh, so as a department head, I uh, uh, you know, encourage that. Uh, and a lot of times uh, what I, uh, uh, you know, we collectively uh, try to do is uh, start something small, you know, so, so we can talk and then in the hallway with whiteboard. And then how do you take the next step? Uh, and in Rensselaer, we have very active uh, undergraduate research program. So a lot of time we will get and uh, get a very uh, uh, talented uh, and, uh, and excitable uh, undergraduate student and get that person to participate uh, to start doing some uh, initial thinking, initial results, uh, and then we can collectively take the next steps. So I, I think we integrate our students into to our collaboration and discussion. And, it's, uh, and a lot of times it pans out into a bigger and better things. Do you ever run up against any barriers when you try to do this, or what are you know what are the challenges involved in encouraging this sort of thing? You know, we talk about it like it's it's the easiest thing to do. Uh, I think uh, you know any change is um, you know it presents a barrier. Right? Mm-hmm. We we uh, we don't want to change, and and yet uh, if you look at engineering as a discipline, it's been it's been constantly changing, constantly evolving. Um, and so I think the barriers are simply maybe to people to get people out of their comfort zones to say, hey, I can apply what I do in um, molecular modeling and simulation to, to think about how I'm going to bring AI algorithms in there. Or I'm synthesizing these molecules, but maybe, in fact, this kind of uh, you know, application, uh, you know, I, I can apply my synthesis techniques far better and so on. So it's really, um, I would say, getting people out of their comfort zones and and sort of pushing them to think bigger than themselves really is is one of the challenges I face, yeah. Mm-hmm. And to me, yeah. time. You know, you've, <laughs> you can find me more time. <laughs> that would be wonderful. And I think that's, uh, I, uh, I look at all the faculty, we all try to do a lot of things. So we write proposal, we write paper, we work with students, and we try to be uh, conscientious uh, teachers and try to impart uh, our inside knowledge, et cetera, to, to our students. To do all this well uh, takes time. And I think that that's the biggest challenge. You know, how do you balance with uh, all this demand on your time and, and your own family? 
going, <laughs> you know, and then keep all the balls in the air. Uh, I think that that's a challenge. Uh, and and uh, so people have different ways to deal with it. But uh, I think we all uh, have the best uh, intention <laughs> sometimes. So we all have a habit of uh, biting uh, uh, off more than we can chew. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think we'll have... Uh, uh, we all want to uh, do all things uh, well uh, all the time. Now, uh, what are some common misconceptions you people might have about engineering or studying engineering? I mean, for me, for example, coming from a liberal arts background, it just seems like this foreign world that I will never be able to understand or really engage with. And I know, Shaker, that you do a lot, actually, with the arts, and that's an important part of your life. How do you how do you bridge those sort of divides? And yeah, so what are, the, what are the common misconceptions? Yeah. So I, I'm a father of two girls. Uh, I have a 10-year-old and 13-year-old, and I'm already seeing sort of messaging that engineering is not for the girls or something like that. And that's, I think, the mm. really big misconception. Yes. You know, engineering is only for the boys or men. That, that, is, that is absolutely not true, right? You know, at Rensselaer, we've had women graduate... Uh, in the late 40s, Nancy Deloy Fitzroy comes to mind, who became an amazing leader. And she's a chemical engineer, actually, but became a leader in mechanical engineering. From, from her to, you know, somebody like Hilary Fiorentino, who graduated in 2019, is already working at Boeing and doing wonderful things, right? Um, so we have many, many, many examples of women in engineering doing amazingly well. You know, discovering new technologies, leading companies, and so on, and and so I think this is a big mis misconception. That's that's number one. Um, I think the second mis misconception, and you know, it's kind of amplified by uh, you know the jokes about engineers and so on, says we are boring. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we are not creative. We we think in a rote manner and so on. Nothing could be further from the truth. Actually, I, engineers are amazingly creative people. In fact, to to solve. Uh, complicated problems, we have to be creative and empathetic. If you ask uh, Chris Letchford, our mm -hmm. head of our uh, civil and environmental engineering department, he says the most important quality as an engineer, um, in addition to being good in their discipline, is you've got to be creative and empathetic. Mm -hmm. um, you know that our Rensselaer Orchestra played at the Carnegie Hall last, uh, last year, right? And <clears throat> I was uh, tremendously proud because more than 50% of the students who played in the orchestra were engineers. Right? Mm -hmm. we, so we are creative. We, we love music. We can write poetry. Uh, and we can bring it all together to solve problems that, that humans really care about. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I want to come back to, to what you just said, Reef. Uh, that uh, uh, engineering seems daunting. You know, you have to have some special insight, special talent and skill in order to get engineering. Uh, uh, actually, I think uh, uh, the key is uh, to take the first step, you know, and that's what I tell my kids uh, is to, to um, uh, and our and that's also part of our job is to lower the barrier uh, and uh, encourage taking that initial step. So, so the, at Rensselaer, uh, uh, one of the ECSE faculty, Paul Schock, is the head of uh, the Center for Innovation uh, for Pre-College Education, and they uh, uh, that's exactly what they, they try to do. They uh, try to bring the uh, Lego League and first robotics, but the key is to bring, make it accessible. Uh, so you have the tools uh, to sort of 
gradually remove that fear factor, not all at once, you know, not, not make it so daunting, but gradually say, hey, I can do this. I can take the first step. Uh, and in our curriculum as well, that we want to uh, make it challenging and rigorous, but yet at the same time with an on-ramp. Uh, so, so for people to uh, get into, and, and it's not to be uh, in an exclusionary club, <laughs> but uh, to uh, be, there, there are ways to um, uh, work your way uh, and grow into the discipline of engineering. And that's uh, what we strive to do. I, I wanted to add to you, you asked about how one um, combines and marries engineering and art as well, right? <clears throat> and mm. John's example came, to, uh, you know, reminded me of the, <clears throat> the molecularium project. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, you know, so I, for my research, I do... Um, uh, molecular simulations of uh, you know really interesting and complicated systems, mm. proteins and water and so on. And when you look at it on a computer screen, it looks mm. just beautiful. Mm. It's beautiful, right? Mm. And so you watch these molecules do their dance, and mm. by watching it, we are learning something important about how this protein works, or how m- might I design a drug molecule against uh, a particular uh, target protein, and so on, right? But but I also you know three of us, three engineers, got together and we thought, hey. Could we use these kinds of media, Mm -hmm. which are artistic and they're visually appealing, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. along with audio, Mm -hmm. (coughs) to teach young children and maybe everybody a bit about molecules, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm I'm fascinated by molecules, and I think if you understand molecules, you can make anything you want in in the world, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so we started off with a very simple project where we had hand-drawn objects and so on, um, made a short movie. And when kids watched it, um, seven, eight, nine-year-old watched it, they were learning a whole lot from this, this combination of engineering and art and music. And so we went to the National Science Foundation and they gave us a lot more funding to make this uh, more professionally. And out of that came this movie called Riding Snowflakes. And the idea was a molecule was going to hold your hand and it's going to take you through the world around you, a glass Mm. of water, a penny, a biological system, and so on. Mm. And then uh, that became so successful uh, that eventually we made an IMAX film mm. and a DVD film. Uh, it's called Molecules to the Max, mm. a- and um, you know it's a it's a. If you have a chance to watch it, please watch it. It's it's a great example of how mm. music and na- na- storytelling and fundamental science, including very complicated molecular simulations, mm. come together to tell story about molecules that mm. is scientifically yeah. you know accurate. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so if a if a young person watches that and they decide, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go get into this world uh, today. Uh, what will it look like by the time they graduate? Where is engineering headed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, engineering is constantly changing. We are yeah. constantly transforming ourselves, right? So I look at engineering and if you just look at the the scale of mm-hmm. like link scale that we work on, right? we work on tiniest things, single atoms. And we design quantum computers. You know, IBM engineers are designing the next quantum computers. Um, we are engineering molecules like proteins and antibodies, and we're designing drugs from that scale all the way to galactic scales, right? We are sending probes to, to mm-hmm. planets and so on, and everything else in, in between. We are, and, and this ability to sample these scales has come from, um, you know, the constant change that is happening in engineering. Um, 
things like uh, computing and data and artificial intelligence and machine learning, which may have sounded foreign or in something that is not in our grasp a few years ago, are now becoming sort of a standard engineering tools, right? Or we will become standard engineering tools, right? And so it's this adoption of new into engineering is what has kept engineering current and has allowed us to evolve and transform. And so, you know, if you are a kid today and, and you're imagining the world of the mm. future, you can imagine any problem that you work want to work on. You want to be the person to, to go to Mars or you want to be the person to develop a quantum computer that is accessible to everybody on their desktop. You know, I think, you know, dream big and engineering will have a major role to play in, you know, fulfilling, you know, that mm -hmm. dream, really, making that successful. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I want to circle back to what you said earlier, uh, the combination of biology and uh, and, and human health uh, with uh, engineering. I think that uh, is absolutely is going to happen. Uh, so, we, uh, you, you know, in Star Trek, we have uh, uh, those Borgs, right, cyborgs. Uh, and I think that, uh, could, that uh, could very well be in the future. Uh, and we work with NASA. Uh, of, uh, of uh, uh, doing uh, construction in space uh, and to build the next generation spaceship directly in space rather than fly from Earth uh, to for the future space exploration. Those are may sound like science fiction, but they will you know, pretty soon be, uh, become reality. And we have faculty looking at human brain, you know, understanding uh, a, a human brain as engineered, uh, you know, system and try to uh, diagnose, uh, you, know, you know, epilepsy, try to cure epilepsy, uh, you know. You know the, uh, so all of those uh, will, you know, become reality one day. Well, I think we only have time for one more question, but I wanted to ask you each, uh, what is a project happening here on campus, maybe that you haven't mentioned already, that particularly excites you? Uh, so, <laughs> you know, we hear about AI and machine learning, and they sound like they are in the realm of computer science, right? What's happening in engineering and AI, machine learning, and data is just fascinating. Mm -hmm. You know, so we are, um, we are, first of all, we are providing courses. So there's a, there's a new highly subscribed course in deep learning. There's a new laboratory in electrical engineering in Internet of Things. Uh, and then we have research uh, where AI and machine learning is being applied to a whole range of really exciting problems. So, you know, John Christian in our aerospace engineering is applying um, machine learning and AI to have autonomous space navigation. So instead of uh, you know se sending a signal and waiting for hours to get confirmation that you know what you wanted to happen happen, can we cut that tether and have the spaceship or your uh, rover uh, navigate itself through doing AI machine learning? In our uh, Center for Biotechnology and in in Interdisciplinary Studies (CBIS) and in our Biomedical Engineering Department, there's a, an amazing group of people led by um, Ji Wang. Xavier Intes and Pinkun Yan, where they are applying AI and machine learning tools to do diagnostics of uh, bio biomedical imaging. So can you diagnose uh, diseases? And uh, can you do real-time intervention during surgeries using uh, applying AI and machine learning? In computational area, Jurgen Hahn is applying AI and machine learning to, um, to do diagnosis of autism. Um, there are, um, you know, AI and machine learning being applied to security of airports and, and uh, infrastructure. I think it's just a, a fascinating time uh, for 
uh, merging of this, uh, you know, computation AI and and algorithms with uh, uh, you know, physical stuff that we do in engineering uh, together. And it might have been shorter to ask if there are any projects that don't excite you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I took too long. Oh, no, John, are there any that he missed? That you... uh, uh, I want to piggyback on the, yeah. the AI ML. So, so the, uh, a particular application of AI uh, is uh, uh, assistive, uh, you know, robotics uh, for uh, handicapped elderly, et cetera. And that's a kind of looming issue uh, for our society, for uh, not just the United States, but all over the world. Uh, uh, we all live longer, and uh, and as we age, uh, you know, the, uh, we prefer to uh, to age in place, you know, in our home rather than going to, to assisted living, nursing home, uh, et cetera. So, the, uh, so, so one project that we have uh, is on assistive uh, robot. So, so there are many parts to it. One is that how do you infer human intent? So one of the uh, faculty at uh, ECSE, uh, Richard Racky, uh, uh, he's uh, uh, also part of the uh, uh, Cognitive uh, and Immersive uh, Systems Laboratory uh, and uh, also the Deputy Director of uh, Light Enable uh, uh, Systems and Application Center. Uh, and uh, so, so, so he used a variety of sensors uh, to uh, uh, try to understand the human intent, human gesture, uh, and allow the human more seamlessly interact with machines, such as robots or maybe other machines. So it's sort of like uh, Alexa uh, on wheel and with arm. <laughs> you know, and then, uh, you don't even have to say anything. You just kind of wave your arm and then they'll move your head uh, and then the good things will happen. Uh, you know, you will interpret your, your intent. So I thought that's really, uh, really exciting. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dean Garde, Professor Wen, thank you for joining us today and talking to us about engineering. Thank Pleasure. you for having us. Yeah. The Why Not Change the World podcast is recorded in the soloist suite at MPAC, the Curtis R. Prime Experimental Media and Performing Arts Center at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Thank you to the MPAC staff for their help, and thank you for listening.